Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. What if you were wearing something sexy? What if you were drinking? What if you made the first move? No matter what, sexual assault is never your fault. Support is available 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Call 1-800-656-HOPE or visit RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. This is Christina Ricci with RAIN, reminding you it's never your fault. Brought to you by RAIN and this station. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Also, I encourage you to check us out on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. Wow. I am going to be speaking with a person who is a writer, a broadcaster, an editor. Uh, she was a deputy editor of Bona, hosted Night Talk on Radio 702, and Breaking Dawn on Newsroom Africa. She's also won National Arts Festival and Business Arts Silver Award for Feature Writing and Media, uh, led 24 Legends Columnist of the Year. This is Guguletu Mushungu. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Good morning. Good evening for you. <laughs> Hi, Joy. Yes, you pronounced it correctly. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you um, so much for coming on and making time. I know that you're very busy. You're all the way across uh, in South Africa right now. There's a lot mm-hmm. of drama going on there with the Jacob Zuma. How are you handling that as a person and then also as a media uh, a broadcaster? Yeah, so it's been quite a tumultuous uh, few days. I think it's been like about nine days now uh, for the country. Obviously, um, the former president being imprisoned for 15 months because of his contempt of court um, after refusing to comply with the subpoena. To appear before we have a commission at the moment that's looking into allegations of high-ranking public officials using their positions to benefit uh, private individuals. Uh, so it's called the State Capture Commission, and the former president was implicated. So there was already quite a lot of talk around will he or will he not be arrested? And of course, for the governing party, that's going through a very difficult time uh, because it's, it's highly factionalized. So they very big ideological splits within the governing party. Its secretary general has also been suspended and came out as a supporter of the former president. And then, you know, when he was imprisoned, when he then handed himself over to begin serving his 15-month sentence, um, there was uh, quite a lot of, well, not a great deal, but his supporters certainly took to the streets. And that's when we saw protests in KZN, which is the province of former president of Islam, and continues to enjoy a great deal of support, but also in the economic uh, hub of the country, a province called Gauteng. 
Um, and it's, yeah, it's been a really difficult, stressful time. Yesterday we heard again from our president, Cyril Ramaphosa, saying what may have started out as quite localized uh, protests around the president seems mm-hmm. to have also been in some ways co-opted by people looking to destabilize the country, uh, which has been a great concern. And also questions around, you know, state, state security says they gave this information to the police and they seem to have not acted on it. So quite a, you know, quite a lot happening. And also discussions around poverty and inequality, as we've seen, you know, people looting for basics, you know, basic foodstuffs, um, because South Africa does have quite a high poverty rate. Uh, we're at about 64% of South Africans are poor. One mm-hmm. in five live in poverty. And that's something that you, you talk about that in your book. And let me ask you, yeah. how do you think women are faring right now with the Zuma situation, because, you know, he was accused in the past of, uh, you know, assaulting uh, a young woman. Um, what do you think is happening with poor women now with this destabilization? Yeah. So, I mean, before COVID and obviously the economic uh, impact of the pandemic, women in South Africa weren't in the best of places particularly black women, they remain the most impoverished. The poverty rate among black South Africans is closer to 80%. Um, women being the group with the highest, a black woman being the group with the highest rate of poverty and unemployment. Uh, just a few days ago, I was looking at a statistic that said domestic workers, one in, I think it was one in four of them, have returned to work since our first lockdown in March of 2020. Um, and that means, so not only are women in ultra-low-paying jobs work, many of them are now without work. So we're still trying to figure out what the impact of the pandemic has been, but it's undisputed that the impact on black women, poor black women, has been immeasurable because they were in such a vulnerable and precarious position before. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so... And and because so many of the jobs that have been disrupted by the lockdowns, by the restrictions on large gatherings are predominantly done by women, that in and of itself has had quite a large impact. So certainly the last 16 months have been devastating for everyone, but especially for poor black women who already were, you know, on the back of economically prior to last year. Mhm, mhm. Tell us, tell the audience a little bit about your book, um, just in a brief, like, couple sentences. What is your book about? So my book is called "You Have Struck a Rock: Women Fighting for Their Power in South Africa," and it really tries to examine what some of the material conditions of young women or South African women right now. So, for instance. I look at what it means to be a domestic worker in South Africa because it is about a million women, predominantly poor black women, who work as domestic workers, but they are some of the least paid, the lowest paid workers in our economy. Uh, Hence, I use the phrase ultra-low wage workers. They only get two-thirds of the minimum wage, and the minimum wage is already quite low. It's not a living wage. So the book looks at some, I look at specific areas and what it means to be a woman for women in land, women and equality. I look at sex work. I look at gender-based violence. I look at physical autonomy and how some of those things actually connect with history. So, again, to return to domestic workers, I actually speak to a unionist 
who herself was a domestic worker four decades ago and became a unionist accidentally. And it was interesting to speak to Manu Klaja because she a very interesting um, overview of what she saw when she started as a unionist in the late 70s, early 80s, mm. to the challenges that prevail right now in 2021, issues of you know, low payments, um, you know, poor working conditions, uh, physical and sexual abuse being quite endemic. Um, so the book looks at some of the challenges now, but also traces the line of history, how history impacts on some of those, those challenges as well. Yes. Now, you start out in the first chapter, you talk about truth and reconciliation. And, and one of the things that you notice in your research is that they were not really focusing on what was happening to women and that women were telling everybody else's story and not their own story. Can you tell the audience why that yeah. was, what you found out about that, why they weren't telling their stories? So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was, I mean, around the world is quite lauded for a way in which it attempted to make sense of South Africa's past and the way in which it prioritized restorative justice versus retribution. And it was an imperfect process, but I thought it was so useful to look at, even in the process of trying to make sense of uh, the years between 1960 and 1994, what did the TRC learn that in 2021 that could be useful for any of us trying to make a uh, sense of history? So the TRC begins its work to try and figure out what were some of the experiences of people living in South Africa in 1960 to 1904. And the reason we use 1960 is in that year, it was quite an important year, um, it saw the banning of two of all political parties, but specifically the ANC, which later became the governing party, and the PAC. And so because it couldn't look at all of the years that apartheid, it looked at those 44 years. And once it began to look at that work, it found that women were coming to the commission to give testimony about what had happened, about uh, arrests, actions by the state, about forced removal, but very seldom were women coming to the commission to speak about what had happened to them. So, for instance, Joy would come to the commission and speak about what had happened to their partner or their children or their neighbor or a colleague or someone that they'd worked with, but very seldom did women come to the TRC and say, this is what happened to me. And as the TRC began its work, it found that in as much as women had stories of other people, they themselves had been victims of abductions, of forced removals. In fact, the face of a lot of the apartheid policies was black, poor, and female. And so mm-hmm. the TRC then figured out that they needed, to be, they needed to be quite deliberate in looking for the stories from women about what was your experience you know, in the period that's being examined. What did you experience? What did you hear? What did you see? And um, there was quite great work done by the Center for Applied Legal Studies at one of our universities that said, if we are to really figure out what happened in apartheid, we have to be deliberate about asking women to share their experiences. And I thought, and I, you know, I went back to the women's hearing, and I thought it was very useful as a way to start the work as a way to show why I was writing the book. To say we must be very deliberate about asking 
women to tell their stories, to ask what happened to you, what did you experience? Um, the same thing, you know, the same thing in America and I think around the globe, you know, women are silenced for so long that they themselves think that that's the norm and, like, their issues aren't important. And, and you bring that up about yeah. in your book about, you know, the issue of sexual assault, like it's just normal. Um, let's talk about this issue of gender and land. There was a very uh, important story that you, you talked about. I, I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. Masha Bell Mary Rahube or Rahub, and mm-hmm. she had a groundbreaking yeah. uh, case. Tell the audience about that case and what it meant for women uh, in the past and also going forward. So a few years ago, I became aware of the story of uh, Mama Mary Rahube. She was, by this time, an elderly woman who was in the South African courts attempting to not be kicked out of her home that she had lived in for decades with her children because of her brother attempting to evict her. Now, previously, under the apartheid dispensation, black women were not able to attain legal status. So you were either a child in your father's sexual minor in your husband's home. As a result, women couldn't own land or housing. If mm-hmm. there was a piece of land, there was a house and a family, the title would automatically be given to the male in the home. In this instance, it went to Mary Rahube's brother, who then, he didn't live in the house for many, many years. He then comes back and then decides he wants her evicted. Mm, even challenges mm-hmm. this on the, on the basis that it is discriminatory because in South Africa, you may not discriminate on the basis of age, gender, sex, sexual orientation, religion, pregnancy. So she challenges this because the law that he was using to evict her did discriminate against her on the basis of being black and female. The mm-hmm. matter goes all the way to our apex court, the constitutional court, the Constitutional Court finds that this particular bit of legislation, which was a relic from apartheid, was unconstitutional because it meant that women could be discriminated against and not be able to have or continue to live in homes that they'd lived in their entire lives or with their family. And so it was struck down. The challenge with Mama Mary's story is even though she was she was now able to have that first part done away with. I actually spoke to two of the lawyers that worked on her case, and they said she may still very well need to go to court to get the eviction uh, prevented. Because all she did was prevent the first part, which was her brother saying he was allowed to kick her out because he was the title holder. That was the first part. But she still needs to go to court and fight to be allowed to stay in her home. And I think Mama Mary is in her 80s now. And she's not one of many women who, because of the previous dispensation, may live in homes, but they don't own them. They weren't able to own them because women weren't allowed to legally become adults. And that's just one manifestation of some of the challenges around women in South Africa and holding property. But I also look at other parts of the world because... Unfortunately, this is a global phenomenon where even the UN on the right to housing finds that women often lose their homes because a partner dies, so your husband will pass away, and yeah. you are being mm-hmm. shipped out of your home by family or the community 
or your husband passes away and suddenly the person that owned the house is no longer there, but you as a woman are not allowed to own the house. So it was interesting to see, while this is quite a big problem in South Africa, it is a global challenge. And there's been, you know, a legislation enacted. I think one of the examples I use is the Tanzanian Village Act, which said that women may not be kicked out of the home following the passing of their husbands because that is such a routine, such an enormous thing, a thing that happens all the time. So it's crazy because, yeah, her story was like, um, you know, one of the best ones because it changed the law. But one of the things you talked about is that people didn't even know the law was changed. Your other chapter is dealing Mm -hmm. with sex, sex workers. Really horrific story um, of this woman, uh, Kumalo, um, by, I guess he was a public figure. Can you tell the audience about that story? Because that really was like, when I read the details, I'm like, my stomach kind of like, I'm like, ah, you know. Yeah. So a few years ago, I was still quite a young journal working at a newspaper, and the story broke of um, now convicted murderers in Tetra that he had been accused of the murder of a sex worker in Cape Town. He had been accused of um, beating her to death in the early hours of the morning in the Western Cape, one of our provinces in the city called Cape Town. And I remember reading Nopila um, Kumalo's story and feeling just, just devastated by her story, A, about the manner in which she had died, and it was also very clear that her being a sex worker was quite a large part to public response because after the news broke, there seemed to be this great hesitancy to believe that someone as celebrated, as well-regarded, as wealthy as um, Tetra would murder a sex worker. But also because South Africa is a deeply religious and conservative country, there was this kind of sense of, well, you know, because she was a sex worker, you know, these things happen. And mm. the story really came. Not like this, though. Um, Not like the way he did it. The way he did it was so yeah. malicious and and evil is the word I would put to yeah. it because it was like, what did this human do to you that you're going to stomp yeah. her like this, you know? Um, and and yeah. it, it, was, it was really, really horrific. But one of the best things that you talk about in the book, um, one of the people you had spoken to research, it was like, just because you were tortured or you have trauma, that doesn't give you an alibi to do torture and trauma to someone else. I really, really appreciate that comment because a lot of times, as you say in the book, people are like, oh, well, you know, this happened to him when he was little, his parents beat him, and he was an orphan, and this, that, and the other. So, you know, that's yeah. why it happened. But what? No, you can't. Mm-mm. No, no, you have a choice. Yeah. At a certain point, you have a choice, yeah. you know, about your yeah. behavior. And, um, go ahead. And I was going to say, you know, part of why I made, I, I quoted that bit was about how, you know, one's own trauma does not, you know, create an alibi to traumatize someone else or to harm someone else is because, especially, again, for black women, and this is across the, uh, the world, because of the history that, you know, of patriarchy, of white supremacy, black women not only endure patriarchy, but we too endure um, racial injustice. 
um, women, you know, women endure homophobia, women endure, and yet, you know, women aren't socialized to believe that we can harm one another in the ways I think men and boys are often allowed to or be or socialized to believe they can behave. And so I thought that was very important, um, especially with, you know, young women who identify with feminism, especially intersectional feminism, many of us thinking about in what ways do, even though I endure harm, how do I enact harm or trauma based mm-hmm. on, you know, sexuality or class or, you know, and I thought that was very important. And I make the point about children. Um, I think children's mm-hmm. rights are an, mm-hmm. are an integral part of, you know, the work of liberating people everywhere. We can't say we want to be free, but want the right to harm children. And that challenges many of us. It's the thing Bell Hooks writes about in her book, All About Love, which I refer to, where she says she knows many people who are staunch, you know, radicals. They are I think you fell out. Could you repeat? Can you repeat what you just said? Sorry, you kind sorry, of fell out. Yes, oh, go sorry. ahead. I can I hear you saying, now. Um, I was saying, you know, if I say children's rights are an important part of, I think, feminism or feminist work, um, because we can't say we want to be free but want to harm children. Um, and it is the thing that Hooks writes about and all about love, which I refer to in book as well, where she says she knows many people who are anti-gender-based violence, who are anti-patriarchy, but want the right to harm children. But, you know, we can't claim to want to be free, but want to harm others, including children, who very well, that often have no rights. The same thing here, yeah, you know, yeah. with the whole, the corporal yeah. punishment, I can do what I want with it. Yeah. I have many friends who were brought up and said, oh, man, I got tons of beatings, you know, but I'm okay now. And it's like, yeah. what? You know, we wouldn't allow somebody to do that to an adult. One of the issues are the LGBTQI issues, trans issues, and you uh, have a discussion with uh, Beverly Dipsy. I had her on the show talking about those issues. And one of the things that is interesting and happens, again, globally, I think that's the issue. We need to see that this is a a global issue. When in the movement, uh, trans people, LGBTQI, are secondary at all to the political movement of black people, you you know? Um, So I thought that is really helpful. I think that this is why your book is important because you're talking about history, you're talking about present day, but you're also talking about globally so that people can see you're not alone in this. This is a patriarchal situation. You are not alone in this. Um, One of the things is the domestic workers issue. Um, and you talk about women who are domestic workers. I've really had a hard time. The lady worked there for 20 years, and then this incident happened. Can you tell yeah. the audience about this particular uh, woman? Um, she, she worked at a family for 20 years, and then uh, this incident. Could you tell them about that? Yeah, so one of the big challenges and why I actually wanted to look at the experience of domestic workers is domestic workers are at the intersection of so many of South Africa and I guess the world's challenges. So on one hand, they have to deal with patriarchy. So the fact that they are women, they are discriminated against, so they're harmed on the basis of their gender. The fact that they are poor workers, 
there's also a level of violence and harm that they experience because of the fact that laborers, which again is you know connected to the history of the country, but again the history of the world. And so with domestic workers, there's this terrible working conditions where in addition to you know undignified, long hours, low pay, there is the reality of violence just being a part of day-to-day life for domestic workers in South Africa. And there were just when I spoke to various unions who are working in the state, there were these horrific stories of women being abused by their employers. In fact, the Easy Domestic Workers Alliance that I speak to, I speak to one of their founders, they actually started um, because there was a case of a woman who had been assaulted unconscious by her male employer. And so, they, and you know, we always have stories of women who have been abused, and there was a story of a woman who'd worked for 20 years for a family, raised their son, and uh, a few years ago, the boy it was then, she says, assaulted her. Um, she was then in court, uh, you know, to testify against this boy that she says, you know, because she raised him, she thought of him as a son, but mm-hmm. he, he assaulted her. And that's just yeah. one example. And I remember reading that story and being so heartbroken because it was just another example of, you know, the, the difficult lives domestic workers have as women, as workers, as and it all happens, and it, there's just this confluence of all of these challenges for this very vulnerable group. Um, I also point out, despite there being a million domestic workers, they have very little protection, um, including, I, I make the case for immigrant domestic workers, undocumented migrants working in the country from different parts of the continent, endure additional violence because, and this is one of the things uh, one of the unions said to me, they the know same thing, employers know that. The same thing happens here, you know, uh, Latino workers yeah. coming from Mexico, um, Russian uh, from from parts of um, Europe, um, Eastern European uh, workers coming, and they're not documented, and the people feel they can do whatever. I mean, we've had stories here in America where, like, they're being kept in the base, and their passport yeah. one are held by the uh, owners of, of the house. Yeah. Heartbreaking in your book was, you know, blacks working white, but now blacks work for blacks and, and, and other who are continuing the cycle of treating these women so horribly, you know. Let me ask you this. Yeah. How long did you write the book? How long? Mm-hmm. How long did I write the book? No, how long did it take? Was it like a year, six months? Uh-huh. How long did it take to write the book? So I started, I completed the bulk of the book last year. Um, so the, the bulk of the work and the research happened um, during sort of the middle bit of 2020. Um, I think it was also just a great way to keep my mind focused on anything but the pandemic. It was great to have something just to focus on. I had to read, I had to write, I had to interview, I had to transcribe. But I really started thinking about the book probably four years ago. I've Mm -hmm. always been interested in, you know, what does it look like when we deliberately gender South Africa's history? Because I've always felt that was missing. 
um, you know, coming up next month with National Women's Day. But outside of that, we don't really talk about women's history. So if, I, if I'm honest, I've been thinking about the book for probably a good four years, but the bulk of it, and started writing some of it, the bulk of it happened last year. What was the hardest part for you? Because I know there's so many, I guess, heartbreaking stories, but you do have some positives that come about. But what, what was the hardest part for you in writing this book? I think, you know, being a woman in South Africa, having experienced some of the things I write about, like intimate partner violence, like the failure of policing, um, you know, patriarchy, I knew things were difficult. I knew we had a great deal of work to do to achieve. I mean, one of the South Africa's founding values is non-sexism, along with non-racialism. But I think one of the most difficult things was once I started the research is really getting to grips with just how bad some of the things were. I'll give you an mm. example. Many years ago, there was an organization founded, and I refer to them, called the One in Nine Campaign. They mm. were created to support the woman who'd come forward about being sexually assaulted by the former president. She I made the allegations, the matter went to court, and she was treated horrifically so much so that she had to go into hiding. But what, where the One in Nine campaign got its name from was there used to be a study by the South African Medical Research Council that found that only one in nine rapes that occur in South Africa are reported to police. And I went back to the One in Nine campaign and spoke to them, and they said to me they believe those numbers have actually worsened. I then went and researched the SA, the South African Medical Research Council data findings, and it's true. The number is no longer one in nine rapes that occur are reported. It's that one in 25 rapes that occur are reported. Mm, and that's a problem mm. that, you know, the situation is worse. Um, it was heartbreaking to speak to the unionists. In her 40 years of working as a unionist around domestic worker issues, she said to me, apartheid is alive and well in South African suburbs because the way that domestic workers are being treated is so bad. And so that was really difficult for me, reading the stats, reading the research, speaking to people that are work, who are doing the work, and just getting a real sense of just how difficult much work is to be done. Um, I did feel a bit despondent at times, but I also say, I think it's in the complete in, in the face of that, I was also quite inspired by the great sense of community, the great sense of all of the people I spoke to have a real strong sense of that things don't need to be the way they are, things can be better. And yes. doing this work. And so while it was difficult, I was really also genuinely edified by speaking to the people I spoke to because they believe things can be different. They believe, you know, we can all be free, we can all be safe. And that for me I think was it was yeah, it was hard to hear some of what they're working with. But I also yeah, think that was, it was a- quite an important part is that mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be this way and we are not alone. Which is the thing I think 
that we are now, not alone. Let me ask connected. you. Let me Google. Let me ask you this: What's something that you learned um, that you didn't know about? Like, what's something that surprised you? Um, maybe something even positive, because we have a lot of bad stuff. Was there anything positive that just really surprised you and you didn't know about in your research? Um, I think so. One of the reasons I started writing this book was about the women uh, of the Federation of South Africa. It mm-hmm. was the country's first um, interracial national organization that prioritized women's issues. And so once I started writing the chapter, I started doing a lot of research about them. And they crafted something called the Women's Charter in 1950, in the early 50s, which it was the dark of apartheid. And it was so interesting to see some of the demands of the charter. You know, they demand, for instance, that women be given the same rights men um, to be unencumbered by, you know, not being able to hold land, have their own bank accounts, or choose what work they wanted to do. And it was so interesting to see, you know, the thread of women's activism from, you know, probably 65 years since that march. But it's so interesting to see, you know, many of the things young women are demanding now is a long history of that. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And even speaking to, you know, I did a chat on a woman called Rudy Juarez. She is the first woman to be elected political uh, organization head in the country. And it's just so interesting to read about her because there's very little about her in our history book, which is why I thought to find out about her. But it's just interesting to find these pockets of history that show that women have been organizing, demanding, uh, marching around these issues, which I think for young women is important. Because I think for many of us, certainly for me, it's easy to feel, I think, isolated, to Mm -hmm. feel like, you know, the thing you are asking for is is new or, you know, but, you know, you have decades of history, decades of, you know, other women doing the work. And so that was interesting for me reading about the woman in Duncan Village who organized a political gathering under the guise of a religious gathering because political gatherings were bad, but you could host a religious gathering. So the women mm. of the Methodist Women's Guild organized this huge uh, anti-apartheid gathering under the guise of a religious gathering. And I thought that was so interesting. You know, it's one you of know, our biggest anti-apartheid gatherings, but we know yes, so little about it. One of the other cool things was the beauty contest, that they had beauty contests yeah. that were originally thought for just, you know, whites, but that was another way of connecting uh, with women. I mean, we really have to be creative when you're coming up against these systems. Um, and, again, same thing here in America, you know, women are fighting, but they have to be creative about how they do it because, yeah. you know, uh, unfortunately, just like you talk about in your book, the police, which is where you want to go for help, are maybe the place where you can't go for help because they are also committing crimes against women. Um, and that's a, something yeah. that's not talked about, um, especially here in America. We talk about young black men being stopped by the police, being brutalized, uh, maybe being, quote, unquote, to be uh, they committed suicide. But there is not a lot of talk about women being stopped and being sexually assaulted by police. And sometimes they're not even yeah. kept, they're let go, but they were sexually assaulted. 
and you don't hear the stories. And you can't tell me it's not happening because we know it happens because women talk about it, but not in this open arena of the news. You don't hear that. You hear yeah. about somebody being beaten or hung, but never, nothing about a sexual assault. Um, and that is a double, like a, 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 we were talking about, it's like a double thing for women. You, you get stopped because you're black, but then because you're a woman and the male police officer mm-hmm. stopping you, you get assaulted. Okay, let's stop talking about all this crazy negative stuff. What is this thing about Dumbledore in the streets and uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Baltimore in the sheets? Are you a Harry Potter addict? What is going on here? I am. So, you know, Harry Potter came out, I think, I must have been in primary school. So, so much of my childhood was in reading the books away too and we had to wait a little bit longer because we didn't get them when they came out in North America or uh, in Europe. But yeah, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. Which, you know, the last couple of years having to reckon for instance with JK Rowling and her very harmful ideas around trans women. But yeah, I mean, grew up on Harry Potter, got immersed in that universe. Um and so a few years ago, I think I've had that bio for Probably, I think a good 10 years now. Um, I don't know where I saw it, but I really loved it about Dumbledore in the streets, Voldemort in the streets. <laughs> so I use it everywhere. You, you so also have a Beyonce thing. You, you, you have Beyonce all over your Instagram. <laughs> Is this your, like, woman crush uh, thing? Like, do you, do you have any crushes on the other women? Like, what's the connection with Beyonce? Why do you like her so much? I think, you know, I initially, I wasn't always a Beyonce fan. I liked Destiny's Child because, again, they were amazing and their music was fantastic. And, you know, they released, I remember one of the first albums I ever got was The Writings on the Wall, um, mm. I think it was their second album. And I loved it. And they were so cool. And it was that moment of girl, girl groups. So you had Black, you had 702, the TLC, you had Destiny's Child. And this was just, the Spice Girls and Girl Power. It was just so cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then Beyonce went solo and I thought, hang on, there's something here. Um, and I remember I became a stan. Like, I joined the Beehive after watching um, the I Am Sasha Fierce World Tour. I got the DVD. And I just <laughs> couldn't believe how incredible she was on stage. And I, I just since then, and I've seen her three times in concert, um, and yeah, I just, I think she's incredible. She is, you know, she's the epitome of just like hard work and grit and, you know, just really putting in the work and being tireless. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah. I'll agree with you. I, I agree with you. Yeah, because, um, I, I took my daughter to incredible. see Beyonce. Yeah, I took my daughter to see ah. Beyonce. It was raining. And when I say it was raining, yeah. at first it was like raining a little bit, but then it started pouring. They did not cancel the concert, and Beyonce came out, and she gave, like, all of herself. Like, I was like, wow. Yeah. And I, I was not a big Beyonce fan. I took my daughter there for her. It was like for her birthday or something. 
and uh, people yeah. were screaming. They knew all the lines. People taking pictures, huge screens and everything. And, like, one example was they had a water. They had the floor was water. They made, like, a, almost a mini pool. Yeah. And the dancers were dancing in the water, and it was pouring rain. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I, I'm with you. I'm with you on the Beyonce. Well, we've come down to the end of our interview here. What, what is up next for you? Do you see yourself writing another book? Um, I, uh, you have a, a working at magazine. What's up for ne- next for you? Um, you know, as I was writing this book, I was already thinking about my next book um, because writing is hard. I think writing is one of the most difficult things I've ever done. But there's so so much, I think, especially with a country like South Africa, just writing this book, there was so much I didn't get to um, Mm -hmm. because of time, because, you know, a book is only so long. So I would like, this is the first of many, that's for sure. Um, I was already, as I was writing, I remember speaking to my publisher and saying, you know, I have this idea about, you know, looking at South Africa and, um, you know, our history around alcohol and what that tells us. I'm really fascinated about that. I'm really keen to tell the story. You know, there are people who are still political prisoners in South Africa, but because mm-hmm. they come from a different political party, they didn't get, um, I guess, asylum or pardons when the dispensation changed. So I'm quite yeah. interested in that story of, you know, what does it mean to be a political prisoner in a democratic country and people don't know about you? Mm. Um, so they love, I think South Africa is interesting that there's so many stories that still, I think, remain to be told. Um, I have a background in TV. I did TV production at university. I would like to do film. Um, so yeah, Maybe a documentary. Yeah, documentaries, I'd like to do, I'm also a culture journalist, I'm really interested in, you know, what culture and entertainment and what that tells us about, you know, society right now, I think it's such an interesting way to look at society. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I've got a lot of stuff on my list, also because I really like filling my time with work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I hope you get some relaxation in. And I hope after all this COVID drama and, and Zuma drama and all kinds of stuff that we can get a little bit of peace somewhere in the world because we got the weather drama, we got politic drama, we got, you know, uh, disease drama. So uh, please take a moment to relax. And I hope you come back on. I would love to have you back on the show to talk about whatever your next book is or your film is, uh, you know, so we can yeah. we can have to discuss those uh new projects of yours, but thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been so great talking to you. All right. Well, you take it easy. You have a great evening because it's evening there for you and a great weekend, okay? Thank you so much. You too, Joy. Keep well. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with Gugu Leitu Machungu. She's a writer, broadcaster, editor. She's held positions as the uh, deputy editor of Bona, hosted Night Talk on Radio 702, and Break Dawn on Newsroom Africa. We just got off the phone talking about um, her book. I'm going to be giving away some copies of her book, so you want to follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also, you want to check me out on Facebook. 
Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturday with Joy Keys. Um, her book is called You Have Struck a Rock, Women Fighting for Their Power in South Africa. Awesome read, really awesome read. You're going to learn so much from that. And also get inspired about other women and what they're doing around the globe and in South Africa to, you know, push women's rights ahead. You guys have a great weekend, and I'll see you next week. And thank you so much for supporting the show. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A Teenager. Learning the Lingo. GOAT. G-O-A-T. Acronym. Stands for Greatest of All Time. As in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.